0: You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Modern changes fast, and if you blink for a minute, you might miss it. So how can you get back into modern after stepping away? This episode is here to help. It's our modern state-of-the-format address, Everything you need to get up to speed and crushing your next modern event. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show! Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am your host, Dan Shriever, also known as Cave Dan Online, and I'm joined all the way from Buenos Aires, Argentina, by the one and only more to light. It's Emi Sagasti. Emmy, welcome.
1: Hello, Dan. How's it going? We got finally hit by this freak of, of cold here. So, if, if anybody might hear me, I'm clearly sick. My throat is just giving up. But that's not going to stop me from discussing magic, so. Just cover here in my ti- in my red blanket and hoping for the best.
0: <laughs> you were in bad shape this weekend. I know you were celebrating your birthday, but after that it seemed like you had a pretty bad fever.
1: Yeah, it seems to be like a sort of flu flying around. And just like every single of my friends got sick. So I spent Saturday and Sunday just having a fever. And after Monday I was like, so I'm going to grind magic and have a fever. I'm going straight underground. See you there in a few in a few hours.
0: Got that modern fever. It's format's so hot right now. This
1: format's so hot. <laughs> the new decks the deck lists. <laughs> Literal modern fever. <laughs> Running me to the ground.
0: Exactly. So we're doing something a little bit different today. This is gonna be our attempt at a, a new style of show.
1: Yeah, so in the last Mailbag episode, we got, like, s- several questions from our patrons asking. So, why wanna get back into this format? And um, what's the best way to get back into it? And it was mostly about Modern and-, and Pioneer, which are formats that change a lot. Mostly in the last couple of years, with, like, the new power level coming in Standard Sets and Modern Horizons. So, it's not easy to get back into a format from scratch, and most podcasts assume that you have a pretty high degree of knowledge. So we wanted to be sort of helpful in that regard and provide a resource for newer players who have not caught up in Modern in a while. Or at least coming back into it.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, the truth is, magic ebbs and flows. You can go from being very, very engaged to just stepping back for a little bit. Maybe life got busy or you wanted to spend some time with other hobbies. And if you're out of the loop for a couple weeks, a month, or a couple months, it can suddenly feel like it's a totally different metagame. Things change so fast, which is a good thing. I mean, it's, it's good that nothing is stale, but it does mean that, you know, we who are here producing content and podcasts every week can sometimes forget that there are people cycling in and out of the formats all the time, and we really want to provide something that can be an entry point for people. If you've been out of loop a little bit, this can be something you can refer to if you're ready to dip your toes back in. Or if you feel like you're already completely caught up, I mean, maybe this is something you can refer to one of your friends.
1: Yeah, so I sometimes forget when I just switch from decklist to decklist that maybe if I hadn't been playing every single day for the past month, I wouldn't be trying some really spicy deck or like a really a new setup for a build. So spread a bit of that and show how has the modern meta changed and what are the different aspects for each deck and the specific cards that you need to know about any of them.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you can think of this as our kind of modern state of the format address for March of 2022. And it's a good timing because we're a couple of weeks now after the banning of Luris of the Dream Den. The new metagame has started to settle down a little bit, we're right on the brink of a brand new set, so with New Capenna around the corner, it might be good to sort of just sort of take stock of where we are. And if this episode is well-received, you know, this might be the kind of thing we can update every couple of months, every time there's a big change or a new set coming out. We'll see how it goes. I think our plan is to run through the top tier of Modern today, and then next week when David is back, we will do something similar for Pioneer, because we've also been getting a lot of questions about Pioneer. How do I get into that format, or how do I get back into Pioneer? A lot of interest in Pioneer right now as well.
1: Yeah, so this is going to be around a bit more than 10 decks around that. You're going to see a huge spectrum of Modern, and it's the most popular decks. You might see a few a few outliers out there. This is not everything you're going to face, but by knowing these decks, you should be prepared for most of what Modern can throw at your face.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, before we dive in, I realized that we forgot to do our housekeeping, so let me just mention that (laughs) real quickly. As always, if you would like to support what we do here at the podcast, the best way to do so is by joining our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. You can make a pledge at any tier you're comfortable with. It can be as little as a dollar a show. That gets you access to our Discord channel and our wonderful community of faithless brewers there. Uh, You'll also get access to some bonus content, including our extended show notes. That's the outline we work on, where we have even more detail on all the decks that we're talking about, all the leagues we're playing, screenshots, hot takes, things too spicy for the air, and all that good Hmm. stuff as well.
1: So, with that being said, do you want us to dive right in?
0: Yeah, I think so. So, basically, for each deck, we'll try to just hit a few key points. We'll talk about A, what is the deck called? Some of these go by several different names. B, what does the deck do at a high level? The 10,000 foot view, if you will. And then we'll talk about a few key cards and interactions that you should be aware of, maybe some of the recent technology you might not have seen, and anything else you should know when playing with or against this deck.
1: Exactly. So, let's... Jump right into the meta. You're gonna, we're going to use when we talk about tiers. I know this is always gonna spark discussion. The word tier, it's the same as the word strictly better. It's always gonna generate <laughs> debate. Don't take this with like saying this is the best thing in the format and it's in that order. I'm just talking about popularity and personal choices and stuff we have discussed. Please don't think anything we're saying, talking about the tiers or popularity, is written in stone. That's the most subjective part of it all. Okay. Just protecting myself.
0: <laughs> when you say top tier, you mean most popular among the winners metagame. Exactly. In like a competitive tournament.
1: At this specific time frame. Yeah. So, always take the tier with a grain of salt. It's specifically modern. So, let's dive right in and start with the one of the last winners, and probably my favorite deck in a while, which is the Four Color Blink slash Four Color Midrange. Yorion Piles. The last remaining true companion deck nowadays, after the Ban of Lurrus, this remains the la- the only deck right now in Modern which actually bases itself around its companion. You will see a number of other companion decks that they will have like Shiganta or Obosh, but it's mostly because of how free it is rather than playing towards it as a main card.
0: Yeah, so if they reveal Yorion Sky Nomad before game one... It's pretty much locked at this point that they're playing this four-color Blink or four-color Omneth. I think some people call it Money Pile.
1: Or Money Pile, yeah. So Money Pile comes from the fact that you're trying to play... You're a four-color mid-range deck, which means you're playing the good cards in the most literal sense of the word. You're playing every single expensive card in the format, and it shows. (laughs) So the the main axis of the deck is making a cumulative card advantage via permanence in the form of Planeswalkers mostly, efficient creatures and enchantment cantrips you can blink with your Yorion. You're going to feature Brennan Six, the best 2-mana Planeswalker in history, probably the only playable 2-mana Planeswalker in history, which is just giving you card advantage every single turn by giving you back a land. You're featuring, the f- you're featuring Omnath, which is one of the insane creatures in Magic. Omnath is a 4-mana 4-4 featuring 4 colors of mana, non-black, which is going to draw you a card on ETB, and then your first land drop is going to gain you for life. But if you have a fetch land, once you fetch, the second land drop is going to give you 4 colors of mana, which means it's free if you have a fetch land after it, which allows lines like turn 5 Omnath, play a fetch land, gain for life, fetch it, and then play a Fury, for example, or a Solitude, which are your 5 mana creatures that on ETB have a removal. Solitude is a 5 mana 3-2 that... Exiles a creature your opponent's control and they gain life Which you know is a minor setback When playing a control deck You don't care about your opponent having 80 life Which is going to happen if you play this deck Or against this deck Like I have seen games of four color mid range Where your, their opponent is like at 70 Because they just exile big creatures A bunch and then they just win with a 1-1 Right? It's like you're at 70 I'm now going to start attacking
0: <laughs> Yeah
1: so besides that, you're facing... If you look at the deck list card by card, you're going to see between 4 and 6 counter spells, 20 removals and planeswalkers. And the creatures are mostly good ETVs or removal ETVs. So you don't have a wincon. You, your wincon is making so much card advantage and so much removal spells, you just outgrind your opponent till they concede and you have a critical mass of, of advantage in the form of small creatures, generally or Emblems with your Planeswalkers. Prismatic Ending is the new remove-it-all, shine-it-all perfect removal for any white-based deck. Prismatic Ending is X and a white for a spell with Converge, which is a really old mechanic, which means you remove a permanent as long as you pay with the same amount of colors as its cost, which means if you you need three colors of mana to remove a three mana permanent, but you can target literally anything with it. Of course, it's non-lance, but it means you can remove an artifact, a planeswalker, a creature, an enchantment, or anything in between, on literally tempo-neutral basis, because it costs you the same amount of mana.
0: Yeah, Prismatic Ending from Modern Horizons 2. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard us remark on the amazing effect this has had on the modern format. The fact that it just attacks permanents of any type means you're protected from most things that the format can throw at you. Together with Prismatic Ending, there's two other big removal effects, Unholy Heat and Solitude. Unholy Heat is a single red for an instant, deals 2 damage to a creature or a Planeswalker, or if you have Delirium, it deals 6 damage. Solitude is one of the evoke elementals for Modern Horizons 2. 3 white-white for a 3-2 flash lifelink. When it enters the battlefield, it casts Swords of Plowshares. That is, it exiles a creature and gains life. You can cast it for free by pitching a white card from your hand
1: for some reason when you said evoke i heard evil and i was like some people might consider it an evil elemental
0: yes exactly
1: i have seen a lot of solitude hate
0: well it has an interesting relationship to this deck in particular so creatures with enter the battlefield effects are very good with the Urian companion but there was a time when we thought that you had to be really exploiting like the blink aspect of the deck so there were builds that were leaning heavily into cards like Ephemerate.
1: Well, those times are coming back, actually. Like, the last, that's exactly the last thing I wanted to add about the deck. The last four deck lists have been posted at Back to 3 for Ephemerates. So the deck has sort of split into two. Actually into three, because you have the Ephemerate decks, the Ragavan contra Make Charm decks, and then you have a new, completely new brew... As the biggest controlling deck, which is just four color elementals, yorion four color elementals, which just goes bigger than the regular daily, featuring cards like Titania and Risen Reef. Titania is a re- an old magic card that's come back with one of those two, which is a five mana five three two and two green and three. Which whenever a land goes to the graveyard, you get a five three elemental, and it gets back a land on ETB, so you can get back a fetch land and fetch it immediately, so you get ten power. In, in board for 5 mana and every single land that goes to a graveyard gives you an additional huge elemental with stuff like Rift and Rift that gets out of hand really, really, really fast.
0: So things to know when playing against 4-color midrange you should expect anything. <laughs> if it looks like they're not doing anything for the first few turns, like maybe they're casting Abundant Growth and Spreading Seas and Expressive Iteration, those are their first 3 plays they're making no forward progress on the game Keep in mind that the longer the game goes, they are more likely to overwhelm you. They can catch up very quickly with Solitude and cheap removal spells, and their entire plan is to extend into the long game, and their cards are just worth more than your cards. Cards like Omnath, cards like Solitude, other decks in Modern do not play cards like this. They're they're too expensive.
1: Both in dollars and in mana values.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, don't be fooled by thinking, okay, it's a mid range deck. I can, you know, bring in removal, kill their creatures because they're going to attack me. It's a control deck. It's a control deck masquerading as a creature deck.
1: Yeah, it's a close friend to another deck in this we're going to talk about later, in how it seems like a mid range deck, plays like a mid range deck, but has the inevitability of a control deck, sort of. Like, you don't want to make a long game against them. And especially, and they're going to try to get back on the tempo of the game, because they're not going to run out of resources, they're going to run out of time if you beat them. So cards like Ephemerate gives them back the tempo swing, for example, you have three creatures, and Solitude Ephemerate is a one-mana wrath effect that gives them a creature. The tempo swing in that is just insane. Or they're going to just have a Ragavan to try to tempo them back into the game, because the monkey is the monkey.
0: The other thing to know is that even though this is a very greedy mana base from the outside, don't be surprised if they cast Counterspell against you, or even if they cast Archmage's Charm, which is blue, blue, blue for a Counterspell with three modes.
1: And if you see Le D'Ambris called, expect them actually to cast Mouse of the Moon against you. Yeah. Like it's back on most sideboards. So be ready to see a Mouse of the Moon if you're playing a combo deck. Be ready to see mostly the new Spice, which is Possession and Brennan 6. They're playing around 3 and 4 copies of Possession between main deck and sideboard. Expect Counterspell, expect main deck Bale of Summer, and just the insane amounts of removal you have ever expected.
0: Yeah, it's important to like not get tilted against this deck, because when you see that they're playing 80 cards and they draw a sideboard card against you, and you're like, ah, oh, I can't believe it, but... That's what the cards are there for and you know if you have that mentality you'll get angry at every card they draw every game and it's not going to help you just understand that it's a pile of value a pile of card draw selection and this is just what they do it's a fun deck to play i imagine and this is one of your favorites emmy
1: i just enjoy the uh, inability aspect of it like the blink version It's like the one that's almost deterministic because it literally has Eternal Witness, Time Warp, Ephemerate, which is a three-card combo. So that's something you should always expect if you're playing against it. Know that if you see an Ephemerate, you're going to see an Eternal Witness trying to lock you out of the game. And if not, the Ragavan version just plays like a control deck. And being able to just hold in your hand Solitude, Counterspell, Ice Fan Quarrel, and Holy Heat, it's like, okay, everything has an answer for it. I don't think I can lose from here. And you're just like, I'm just going to win eventually with this quadle. All
0: right. So that is four color. What do we call this deck again?
1: Four <laughs> color blink, four color midrange, or four, or Omnath piles. Omnath piles then should be the name to just sum them all together. Like the four color, five color greedy piles that just play Omnath as the main linking point.
0: All right. So that deck tops our list. And because it's an 80-card deck, it has a lot of variation in the build, a lot of cards to talk about. These next few decks are a little more streamlined and focused, so we can hopefully just zero in on yeah. what exactly they're trying to do.
1: Okay, so following that, we have Living End, which is the complete opposite in the spread of how do we build it and how much we have to discuss.
0: Yes, exactly. Living End is one of two decks that we'll talk about today built around the Cascade mechanic. Cascade has been around for a long time, although it recently got the card Shardless Agent from Modern Horizons 2, and that has really pushed these decks to the top tier of the metagame. With a Cascade deck, you're looking at Violent Outburst and Shardless Agent. When you cast them, they will reveal a cards from the top of your deck until they find any card with a lesser CMC, and they will cast that card for free. The way these decks are built is that they have only one card in the entire deck that they can be found off that so every time you cast a Charlotte's agent or a violent outburst you're always going to find the namesake card which is in this case living end it's a sorcery it has suspend but you'll never see anyone suspend it instead they're only going to cascade for it and when it resolves it basically flips all the creatures in play and graveyard it wraps the board and brings back all the creatures that were in the graveyard come back into play Basically, the card Living Death, if you're an ancient paper boomer like myself.
1: <laughs> if if you're a boomer. So my complete opposite, because when I, leave, I read Living Death, it's like Living End without Suspend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We go, we go the other way. For us Zoomers.
0: So can you actually build a deck that doesn't have any cards at one or two mana? Well, it turns out you can.
1: So what they have done is played a false One drop and two drops and zero drops. Because Force of Negation doesn't actually cost three mana, right?
0: Exactly, right? These free spells, they have a high mana cost. It's kind of the trade-off for being able to cast them for free.
1: So that gives them the the way to sneakily play a lot of early game interaction that costs a lot less than three mana, and they can actually play it even if they're still cascading. In this particular version of the deck, we have stuff like Force of Negation, which is a 3 mana negate, or during your opponent's turn, you can exile a blue card from your hand in order to cast it for free. Which means if your opponent is trying to discard you, you can actually counter spell it on turn one. Then you have Grief, which is what the other the black part of the evoke elemental set, which you can it's a 4 mana 3-2, but you can play it for you can evoke it for, th- for free by exiling a black card in your hand. That means you already have eight pieces of free interaction on game one. In your deck that shouldn't be able to play anything that costs less than three. Legal loopholes are fun.
0: Yeah, so this is not at all like the living index of old, where the only interaction was <laughs> Foam Leader Mage that you hardcast for three mana and tried to blow up a land.
1: Times have changed.
0: Right, this, this deck will actually grief you on turn one and take the graveyard piece that you would mulligan for.
1: And finally you have Right now in the main deck, as additional interaction, now they have Otawara and sometimes a main deck you, which are the new channel lands. Otawara being a four mana bounce, any non-land permanent. And also the Colossal Sky Turtle, which is a cycling creature that costs seven. So it actually, for once, actually fits in what they're doing. It's actually a cycling creature. It actually That's the sort of interaction they should be playing in a fur world.
0: Oh, a channel creature, rather.
1: Exactly, a channel creature that goes to the graveyard, walks with living lane, and actually costs 7. It's like, that's a fair interaction. But it has a channel ability of for 2 mana bouncing at non permanent or for 3 mana getting back a card from your graveyard. Which means it can get them back a counter, get them back a discard, or just bounce your graveyard hate in order to combo off.
0: So when you're playing against this deck, it'll be pretty clear what they're up to. They're going to play a land and pass on the first turn, and on your end step they'll start <laughs> cycling some random things. Um they have about twenty cyclers. I, I won't read what they do, but you'll you'll see these creatures the worst creature you've ever seen will be ca cycle. And You don't
1: care what they do. There are seven mana five fives. Exactly. But you're gonna get swarmed by seven mana 5-5s on turn three. So you just care about that part.
0: And every time they do this, they're cycling towards their cascade effect, so it's very, very consistent at finding the cascade effect to trigger living end. Yeah. Um they often just win game one for free, basically, based off that alone. Where it gets interesting is what happens in the sideboard games. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on whether you're playing with or against Living End, they have a ton of great options for interaction. Uh, We mentioned Solitude and Grief already. The blue member of the cycle is Subtlety. This is a 3-3 flyer. Again, you can cast it for free by pitching a blue card from your hand. When it comes into play, it counters a creature. They have to put the creature either on top or bottom of their deck.
1: Or Planeswalker, which is... Really important against Teferi, because cascade effects, cascade effects get countered by Teferi's passive ability.
0: Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, so Teferi is one way to fight against this, but they will have usually subtleties and mystical disputes to counter the Teferi before you can resolve it, and that could be the, the window they need to get their Cascade to happen. Alternately, you might be thinking, oh, I should bring in something like a Rest in Peace or a Leyland of the Void or something like that. Well, they're going to have... Force of Vigor and Foundation Breaker. These are cards that, again, they cost more than three mana, technically, so they work with Cascade. But um, you can cast them either for free in the case of Force of Vigor, or you can evoke the Foundation Breaker for a disenchant naturalized type effect to destroy permanents like that. And if you somehow account for all those angles, maybe they switch out Living End for Crashing Footfalls instead and juke you or something.
1: That sometimes happens. Also, they bring uh, stuff to have in mind... If your hate includes stuff like Endurance or Nihil Spellbomb, you have to cyborg in Enchantment Removal because they're going to bring in Leyland of Sanctity because both Nihil Spellbomb and Endurance target. So if you're playing that as your graveyard hate, remember to bring in your Enchantment hate as well in order to play against them.
0: So this deck is surprisingly difficult for a graveyard deck, it's surprisingly difficult to attack this deck. Exactly. We've seen it just steadily on the rise the last couple of weeks.
1: It's so linear that it can focus on just protecting its plan. It has no plan B. If you can actually stop its graveyard, they're gonna start hard casting 4 mana 4 4s or 4 mana 3 3s. They don't have a plan B. But they are so efficient that it, they, they just focus on protecting that. And if it resolves, it tends to be a win. Especially now that stuff like Grief, wants, so they can get a turn 1 discard with Grief. And if they get to resolve a turn 3 living end, they can just get back that grief as well, and they can discard your wrath effect, or whatever you have to try and restabilize. And that's a huge part of how much it has gained in popularity.
0: Yeah, grief has been such a huge pickup for this strategy. Yes. One of the more frustrating cards to play against.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once they go turn 1 grief your hand, turn 2 force of negation your play into so turn 3, put 4 creatures into play, It's such a sense of impotence because nothing you did even matter. You just got absolutely overwhelmed with threats, answers, discards, and you just lost that game. You cannot beat Living Ends Perfect Hunt.
0: Alright, next deck up is Blue Red Murktide. This is one of the more popular decks. I found this to be true both online and in paper. It's got counterspells... It's got cheap removal, it's got cheap threats. And we know that magic players love casting these cards, right? They they love that feeling of cleverness and power when you're, you know, end-step.
1: Consider. Cantrip.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: People love resolving expressive iteration, and that tells you a lot about the usual magic player. They feel so smart. eh?
0: Exactly. This is one of the best decks for feeling smart, and, I mean, I gotta say, it feels fantastic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When I play this deck, I... I feel it too. I'm like, I'm such a good magic player. I love this (laughs) deck.
1: We are not saying this in a a teasing or insulting way. We're just saying, we also love feeling smart. This deck makes you... It has that play pattern where you just feel like, oh, I just want to sound smart. Even if what you did was obvious, it doesn't feel like that. Because you just have so many options on tempo every single turn.
0: So the cards you need to be aware of... This is mainly a deck full of cheap blue and red spells, but the way that they win is with some new creatures from Modern Horizons 2. The most important one, in my opinion, is Murktide Regent. This is 5 blue-blue for a 3-3 Flying Dragon with Delve. Delve meaning that you can cast it for as little as blue-blue. And when it comes into play, it checks how many instants and sorceries you delved or you exile when you cast it, and it comes in with that many plus one, plus one counters. So if you've dealt five instants and sorceries to cast Merktide Regent, you're you're getting an eight-eight flying creature for just two mana. And then it continues to grow every time additional instants and sorceries are exiled. So if you draw a second Merktide Regent later in the game, you can grow your first Merktide Regent even bigger.
1: I remember when I first realized that because I cracked a relic of Progenitus because I hadn't read that second paragraph. And just got blown mm. by myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you're familiar with the card Tombstalker from back in the day, that was... What was that? 5 black black for a 5-5 five five flying?
1: Um, the yeah. Merc
0: Tide is so much bigger. So much bigger. And it's in blue, so you can much more easily protect it.
1: That's a huge part. It's a blue delve thread that consistently is a 7-7 seven seven or 8-8. Eight eight.
0: Now, Merc Regent alone is usually not enough to win, so in order to throw the opponent off balance, they'll usually have cheap threats. Starting with four copies of Ragavan Nimble Pilferer, a card we already talked about in the Blink deck, but just to read it again, it's a single red for a 2 1 legendary creature, Monkey Pirate. Whenever Ragavan deals combat damage to a player, you get to create a treasure token, and you also get to exile the top card of their deck, and you may play that card this turn. Now, you have to pay the appropriate colors for it, but hey, you just got a treasure. So you can probably cast it if it's cheap. It also has dash. I don't know why it has dash, but that means you can <laughs> cast it for two <laughs> and it will gain haste and then it comes back to your hand and of turn, so it can actually get around some sorcery speed removal. You'll often find yourself like staring at a prismatic ending in your hand because you were told this was the best removal spell in modern and then they're just dashing Ragavan turn after turn and killing you that way.
1: having dash is what makes it a good top leg, even in the mid game to late game. You're going to be both facing your opponent, and sometimes, even if you're ahead, your opponent's going to dash a Raghavan and hit your best spell in your deck. And the feeling of just, okay, variants,
0: Yeah. And then the third creature in most configurations of this deck is Dragon's Rage Channeler. Again, single red, so very, very cheap. 1-1. One, one. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you get to Surveil 1. And then when you achieve Delirium, it becomes a 3-3 flying creature that must attack every turn. Tiny drawback, but its card is so, so powerful. We used to play Delver of Secrets. Dragon's Rage Channeler is like a super Delver that fixes all of your draws.
1: The surveillance aspect of it becomes so much advantage in how much you dig without showing it. Like, until you play it, you don't get the grasp of how much you're digging with it, right? You just don't realize, like, the three lands you tends to a graveyard has been really close to drawing three lands once you already have the 3-4 you need on board.
0: Yeah, it's really stunning. I mean, you'll often see Dragon's Rage Chandler followed by Mishra's Bubble on the first turn, which surveils one immediately, then you sacrifice the bubble, maybe you cracked a land to do this, and you're basically going to get Delirium by turn two, and you're already well on your way towards fueling the Delve for your Murktide Regent. Compare that to, like, how we used to have to play Thoughtscour in Grixis the Shadow to try to enable a Grimmad game <laughs> I mean, this modern is, is changing.
1: <laughs> so that has happened a lot lately, that cards that people thought they had to focus on playing around, now it's like, no, no this card is so good, we're just gonna play it as a good card. And the, our deck is not gonna try to enable it, it's gonna enable itself. Like, what happened with Udo in the past, with people trying to Play Thoughtscower and no, just play Uro, be a good card. Murktide Reset is the same. You don't need to just start milling yourself and go crazy. You're gonna play a value game, and with the removals, counter spells, and just cantrips, you're gonna be able to play it really consistently. And just have a huge dragon to win the game after your opponent has used a removal on your amazing one-drops.
0: Right, the first drafts of Murktide decks did play Thought and then eventually people just replaced them with Consider, which is opt but it surveils. And, it's just better that way. It's a better deck. Because at the end of the day, you don't really need to be fast. What's so good about this deck is that it can play a very quick tempo game, or it can play the long game. It's very comfortable shifting roles. You have to be prepared to kill the turn one Ragavan, but you also have to be prepared to go toe-to-toe with just endless pile of interaction. You know, they have Lightning Bowls, they have Unholy Heats, they have counter spells, they have Archmage's Charm have card draw to reload so the game will often go for several turns the creatures attack from two different axes right you need like your your cheap cheap effects that can pick off one drops and then you need something to to deal with murktai regent and very very few things can kill Murkti regent
1: yeah and the their main plan is gonna shift a lot like a lot of the time they're gonna try to develop a ragaban and if the Dragon survives, they're going to play a tempo game. They're going to play Protect the Queen. They're going to spell pressure removal, counter-spell your bounce, and just try to win with that Dragon on board, giving them a lot of tempo advantage thanks to the Treasures. However, if you deal with the Ragavan, a lot of the time you're going to see a shift in the multiplayer's playstyle. They're going to switch all of a sudden from a tempo-aggressive deck to like a tempo shell. Sorry, to a more controlling shell where they're going to go... Land, go, land, go, land, go. A lot of a sudden, they're going to have 6-7 cards in hand and play a murk that regent. And hold up, like, double counter spell and put you in a really awkward position. Where every single bolt, every single creature you have now is being threatened by an 8-8 that's going to close the game in two turns. And you know what they have been looking? They have been looking for those counter spells to protect that 8-8. They don't care about closing the game with Ragamans and Darcy's and um, Dragon Ray's anymore. This is a Murktide game now. You've tried to find a way to remove it, or you're just going to lose to it really, really fast.
0: So when you're playing against Is It Murktide, are there any specific cards you have to watch out for, like in the sideboard games or in different variant configurations?
1: Well, the most important aspect of it is you should expect Blood Moon not only on cyborg games, but also in some number in the game 1. Most decks are playing two or three in the main deck, and all of them have blood moons between main and side. So you should know blood moons are going to appear, or at least be a possibility. So if you can fetch, try to fetch accordingly.
0: Yeah, I think that's the big one too. You'll often find them playing Dress Down in the sideboard, which is a weird little card. This is a new one from MH2. One in a blue for an enchantment with flesh. It draws a card when you cast it. Or rather, when it enters the battlefield. And then it's a humility effect. It says all creatures lose all abilities. And then this this stays in play for basically one turn. It, it gets sacrificed at the next end step. Which creates all kinds of weird interactions. It's actually primarily there to take out construct tokens. Um, some of the decks we'll talk about later. Use the card Urza's Saga, which can produce 0-0 zero, zero creatures that get plus 1, plus 1. And just by quirk of the rules... When you remove that plus one, plus one ability, which is what a Humility or a Dress Down effect does, all of their constructs immediately die. But there are many, many other weird interactions with Dress Down, so don't be surprised if some strange things happen.
1: <laughs> dress Down would also be amazing against decks like primural Titan as it stops the ETVs, or also against like, stuff like Four Color because it stops Solitude, which is their best removal against Moog Tide.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: With that being said, please pick your land drop before playing your spell. If you can avoid spell pierce, they are gonna play spell pierce in the main deck and in the sideboard. So don't be the one player that gets hit by spell pierce and then play the land drop of shame. <laughs> yes. That's really tough.
0: If that happens to you, don't play the land. Just pass the turn and pretend you didn't have a land.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's better to lose the game due to lack of land drops than having the the shame of admitting you lost to not playing the land drop. <laughs> Exactly. Besides that, Fury is an amazing card. Five mana, thirty-three double strike, split for damage, and they can play it for free by evoking it by exciting a red card. And last but not least, chase the mind sculptor against any grindy or mid race deck. So try to play to the board post cyborg games if you're playing in like the control mirror or like you're playing something that's a bit slow, because if they manage to just play a chase and you have been just holding up removal for like ragavan and they sneak a chase in, you're not coming back from that easily. And that happens a lot.
0: Yeah, I find that Teferi Time Reveler is one of the most powerful cards against this deck, specifically because it can bounce Murktide Regent. But, you'd also think it's great at shutting off counterspells, but it turns out that just Unholy Heat is so good at cleaning up Planeswalker threats, you'll really come to appreciate the power of Unholy Heat. It's very hard to keep any threat on the board.
1: Six damage is a lot. And post-cyborg games, when you are actually attacking the graveyard, so stuff like Relic of Pogenitus is amazing against them. What you want against them is cheap, efficient creatures and removal, rather than big, showy spells, and graveyard hate. Efficient graveyard hate in the form of Relic, Rest in Peace, or Endurance are exactly what you want against 4-Color, against Morktide. Just controlling the graveyard, making the murk like hard to cast, making Darcy stay as a 1-1, and making a holy hit a bad shock, is your goal in that game.
0: Alright, next up, we are still in tier 1. We have Hammer Time.
1: Beautiful Hammer Time that a lot of people were afraid was going to die with the Lurus man. It's still making waves. Everybody, don't sleep on Hammer Time. Don't think it's just Battle of a So, how does it play, then? What's the, What's our goal?
0: Well, we gotta talk about Colossus Hammer. An equipment for one generic mana. Equipped creature gets plus ten, plus ten. And loses flying, because the hammer is so heavy. It's Although, so heavy, you're gonna fly. <laughs> exactly. Although, as we'll talk about, they somehow managed to get around that and give their creature flying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it has an... Enormous prohibitive equipped cost. Equip is 8, so we're definitely not paying that. Instead, we're using some of these effects that let us equip for free. The two ways to do that are Pure Steel Paladin, an oldie from back in the day, that when you have Metalcraft, so Pure Steel Paladin is white-white for a 2-2 human knight. When you have Metalcraft, that is when you have three artifacts in play, all of your equipment gains the ability to equip for zero mana. And Pure Soul Paladin also draws a card whenever an equipment comes into play, so it's a card advantage engine as well. The other way to do that is Sigarda's Aid, a single white enchantment. It lets you cast equipment and auras with flash, so now you have to be worried about the hammer getting flashed in in the middle of combat. Whenever an equipment enters the battlefield, Sigarda's Aid allows you to attach it for free to target creature you control. So the cards I've named cost 1, 1, and 2. So we're, we're talking about a very, very lean, cheap, load of the ground deck. Uh, and the surrounding pieces just lean very, very much into that strategy. We're talking about Stoneforge Mystic to find the Colossus Hammer. Creatures like Memnite and Ornithopter, these are zero-mana creatures, but they're it doesn't matter <laughs> because you're going to be giving them plus 10, plus 10. And they are also artifacts for the Pure Steel Paladin. And Esper Sentinel, single white artifact creature human soldier. So again, we got that artifact theme going on, and it provides a taxing effect. Uh, Whenever the opponent casts a non-creature spell for the first time each turn, they have to pay a tax equal to Esper Sentinel's power, and if they don't, you get to draw a card.
1: So Esper Sentinel is amazing at making your opponent play either off-tempo or giving you back value as you push forward your extremely proactive plan. If your opponent is trying to pay the tax, they are going to fall so far behind it uh, in tempo that you can just crush them. And if they don't pay the tax, hey, you are drawing cards with your one drop.
0: Right, so what I've described so far kind of sounds like an infect style strategy where you try to get a creature in play and get one or two big hits in with the with the hammer. And it seems like it's a lot of work to set it up. So you might think that it's enough to just you know, broadens have removal spells and assume that will win the game. But, uh, I mean, Hammer is a tier 1 deck for a reason. They've advanced past that stage <laughs> of interaction. <laughs> um, they, they have more tricks, right?
1: The huge card that has made it so, okay, so I just hold up a Path to Exile or a Bolt and I'm fine, is Saga. So let's say you're just holding up your removal, your opponent has a Cigarra State on board, Cigarra State is a one-man enchantment that, make, that equips the Hammer, whenever it enters, at instant speed, so you say, okay, I hold up this bolt, my opponent has a bunch of 1-1s, I can just kill a 1-1 in response. And your opponent plays Ursa Saga. Now you have a problem, because your opponent has a bunch of main mines, a bunch of 1-1s with no text, and some other part artifacts on board. And all of a sudden, your opponent now has the capability of making 2 eight eights or 2 nine nines over the next two following turns, and then getting an extra hammer on board. How do you deal with that? If you're just holding up a bolt? and if you tap around to deal with the Saga, okay, now they have the hammer they wanted to play.
0: Yeah, this is the premier Urza Saga deck, and it gets such a huge boost from having Urza Saga. Huge. Um, you'll also find that most Saga decks play a single copy of Shadow Spear. This is an equipment for one, it equips for two mana, gives the equipped creature plus one, plus one, lifelink, and trample. And it also has a weird ability to make things lose hexproof, uh, but that doesn't come up very often.
1: <laughs> it, it 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 killed Bogles, so we can at least thank it for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ursa's Saga is the clue of this deck, and it's also the reason you will see a lot of really weird cards in other decks. It's the reason you will see a lot of spreading in modern because of the interaction of Spreading is killing Ursa Saga due to removing all the due to removing all the text and making it so it has it's a saga with more counters than it should, immediately killing it, making Spreading Seas a 2 mana pillage sort of. It's the reason we see a lot of dress down because of the rules Dan explained in the past about it killing the constructs. Ursa Saga warps a lot of deck choices of other decks because of how stupidly powerful it is, but also how good the interaction against it is. Allowing your opponent to have a two-mana pillage that can trips it's a huge risk. But if they don't have it, the card might single-handedly win you the game.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I find that, you know, if you have something in your cyborg that attacks lands, it's usually worth it to bring in some copies, because they're also playing Ink Moth Nexus. Ink Moth Nexus, again, from the Infect days. A familiar card, but when you can give it plus 10, plus 10 with a Colossus Hammer... That's a one-hit kill. A little trick to be aware of is that even though Colossus Hammer makes the creature lose flying because it's so heavy, if you equip it to Ink Moth Nexus, you can just pay the activation an additional time, turn Ink Moth Nexus into a creature a second time, and that will actually give it flying uh, again, which seems like it shouldn't be possible, but that's that's how it works. So even that is it's not guaranteed that they won't be attacking you from the skies with an <laughs> Enormous Hammer.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of need of small interactions to take account into this deck. When they have Double cigaras, say you need two removals if they're like pole based because they can make it so the hammer attaches to one creature first and then to another. So if you kill the second one, it will stay attached to the previous one.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Or stuff like giving the moth flying. There's a lot of small details to always take into consideration when facing it.
0: Yeah, if you have something like a lightning bolt that is damage-based removal against a Flash 10-10 equipment, I mean, that could go a lot of different ways. (laughs) It could go very badly for you, or it could go very well for you. I mean, if you can strand the Colossus Hammer, right, if you can successfully kill the creature that the hammer was attached to, now they can't re-equip it until they find a Pure Steel Paladin. Uh, So you've bought yourself some time.
1: Pure Steel Paladin is still an amazing card. That's something you should never forget. steel Paladin drawing you cards on TV of the hammers means you get yourself in a really awkward position if you also have a cigar to say it, Because do I kill what the hammer is equipping, or do I shoot the Paladin before so they don't get to draw a card? And you start to get into those awkward spots, especially when Esper in is aboard as well, where everything feels like a bad decision, but you have to take what's probably the best one in order to get ahead eventually.
0: Yeah, so Hammer Time is still hanging around the top tier. It's still hanging around, and you'll see people experimenting with a light splash. Often, a couple of blue cars will make it into the list, or sometimes black for Thought Thoughtseize. Occasionally, red for Magnetic Theft, which is another way to attach Colossus Hammer.
1: Black tends to be the most popular splash. Blue is also popular due to reality cheap, but ninety-nine percent of the shell is white, and that's what matters the most. You will see some cyber cards and one are one of two spells, but that's what of the most, the white spells. You will also see now that they lost Lurus, Nettleseed, and some number of swords between cyber and main deck due to Stoneforge Mystic package. So always remember have that in mind. Swords can get really annoying if they line up against you.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. Next up on the list, we have the black-red entrant into the top tier. Grixis Death's Shadow. Death's Shadow is a creature that's has been around forever, but the deck looks a little bit different than the last time you've seen it if you haven't played in a while.
1: Not only that, there's this loving spot right now where they haven't still found like the decklist for Shadow, so we're seeing so many shadow bruce if you're putting strong strong one fetch shock thotsis expect it to be shadow but the number of possible combinations nowadays is going to be huge you can go you're going to see the good old grixie space shadows playing stuff like gurma or sometimes mortite regent or sometimes kaito the new planeswalker three mana one but they are always going to have something in common they're going to play a lot of extremely efficient creatures. They're going to try and get ahead on tempo and get the life total low. They're going to try and discard your removal and really, really swiftly kill you with a Death Shadow.
0: So, a lot of the cards are shared between Brix's Death Shadow and Is It Murktide, namely Dragon's Race Chandler, Mistress Bauble, you'll always find those two paired together, Ragavans, Unholy Heats, and Expressive Iterations. So, those 20 cards are the same. But instead of trying to play more expensive and reactive with counterspells, the black discard package, so usually six copies main deck between Thought Thoughtseize and Inquisition, paired with Death Shadow means that you can punch through and just sort of create holes in the opponent's game plan. And you'll often find a full playset of Drown in the Lock. This is a blue black instant. It is a modal terminate or counterspell. It checks how many cards the opponent has in their graveyard, and then is it allowed to either counter a spell or destroy a creature? Uh, with cmc less than or equal to that number of cards so a very very powerful versatile effect then of course the namesake card death shadow which i mean you can win without this card you can just win with dragon's rage handler Regivan, and Croxo if you want to but you have to be aware of uh, a few different angles
1: you have to respect the shadow and a big part of it is making your opponent hold a removal in hand because they don't want to fight a removal on a, on a- on a Challenger, when they know a Tenten can enter the board next turn. So it puts them in that really weird duality on, can I fire this, can I actually use this primatic ending on that channeler, or should I take the hits and save it for the shadow? And if I save it, will they hit me with a discard before playing the shadow? It generates that pressure in the, in the opponent.
0: Other things to know is that you'll, this is one of the last decks that plays Dress Down in the main deck. Uh, often two main, one side. And we talked about that card already. They usually don't play Teamer Battle Rage. So if you are an old school modern player, you, you live in fear of Teamer Battle Rage on Death Shadow. I haven't seen Teamer Battle Rage in a long no. time. Um, it's a kind of a weak card, but it can steal a lot of games. So this is a much more fair version of Shadow. It's just saying, my cards are more efficient than yours. My interaction can kill whatever you present. Uh, I'm going to use a combination of tempo and grinding to just power through.
1: TBR got replaced by Dressdown, because one of the final interactions with Dressdown, besides everything we said, is the fact that it makes Shadow a 13-13, regardless of your life total. So, even if it's not as powerful as TBR as, like, a combat trick, a lot of, a lot of the sudden, if you have, like, a, you might need to jump block a Shadow, just because if they have a Dressdown, they might one-shot you.
0: Yeah, that's such a... Strange interaction, so Dress Down (laughs) makes the death title lose its ability, and its ability is that it gets minus X minus X, where X is your life total, so you lose that, you're just left with a 13-13.
1: And that's going to kill you a lot of the time. so it's the new TBR that's a lot more versatile and always can't
0: Next up, Blue-White Control.
1: The one and only control deck for meta, the beautiful Wafo Daba Control, named after Kuyen Wufutapa, who has got insane amount of results with it lately.
0: Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's the only deck that is named Control, but I think that the four-color Omnath deck yeah. is also a Control deck.
1: Yeah, but this is Control...
0: And it's it's favored in the Control Mirror against Blue-White, so... <laughs> it is. <laughs> that means it's the biggest Control deck.
1: This plays like a Control deck of old. Like, if you showed all the deck lists here to, like, an old magic player, they would say, okay, this is control- This is what I like. This is what I'm used to. Cheap instant speed trips, a lot of counter spells, instant speed removal, and trying to win with expensive planeswalkers, not just our six that got away.
0: Yeah, we haven't named the cards Snapcaster Mage yet, and <laughs> we've talked about several blue decks, so this deck sometimes plays Snapcaster Mage. Snapcaster, Counterspell, Archmage's Charm opt some card draw in the form of memory deluge. This is two blue-blue. It looks at your top X cards, where X is the amount of mana you spent to cast memory deluge. You get to put two of those into your hand. Why does it check the amount of mana you spent? Because it also has flashback for seven, so you can potentially flash it back and look at seven cards and pick two.
1: It's a new and better version of Factor Fiction. It's the memory deluge, it's the new, it's the fourth you lose.
0: So the blue is providing counter magic, is providing some card draw. The white is providing creature removal. So we've talked about solitude already, and prismatic ending. You'll find both of those here, and you'll also find a new card, march of otherworldly light.
1: So the march is one of the greatest hits of Kamigawa, which is white and x that allows you as an additional cost to exile white cards from your hand to pay as two mana. And it exiles a creature, artifact, or enchantment that costs X or less. So if your opponent plays a 1-drop, this is a 2-mana removal that you could pay 1 and exile a white card. If your opponent plays a 3-drop, this is a 4-mana exile or 1-mana alongside. Sorry, or a 2-mana alongside exiling a card from your hand. It's tempo negative, but it's an instant, it's versatile, and it has some amazing interactions like being a 1-mana Kill Your Ursa Saga or kill your man land or zero mana spell artifact
0: yeah very nice pickup and Emi mean, you were exactly right in preview week you said this was going to be well a strictly better spreading seas <laughs> picking off Urza's Saga
1: I you used to play three spreading seas and I'm not seeing any right now I'm just gonna go back to saying this is a strictly better spreading slice.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, you'll also find a couple of Supreme Verdicts, and to actually win the game, you have Planeswalkers. Two Teferi Hero of Dominaria, three Teferi Time Raveler, that's the typical configuration. And then you'll find in the, the bonus Planeswalker slot either Jace the Mind Sculptor or now more commonly the Wandering Emperor.
1: Emperor has been amazing for control legs, even for color to turn around the game. Like, all of a sudden, when the game is sort of stabilized, end step, play the Sleepwalker, even if I'm holding up control Spell, make a Choo-Choo, untap, make another Choo-Choo start attacking, and I never stop holding up interaction. It's such a huge... It's just a perfect way for these sort of decks to get on the aggressive, right? Like, they never stop holding up the interaction. They never risk you getting back into the game. And all of a sudden, they are the ones attacking.
0: Yeah, I underestimate this card for sure. Having seen blue-white become the most popular deck in Pioneer as well on the back of Wandering Emperor and realizing that it's turn four and they pass the turn with four mana open and I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, they have three cards, four cards in their hand, so it could be anything. Like, you can't assume that they have everything, but they'll, they just might get you. You know, if you attack with one creature, they might play Wandering Emperor and exile it. If you overextend, they might have Supreme Verdict on their turn, and if you do nothing, they might cast Archmage's Charm uh, and just <laughs> draw two cards
1: so it's the collected company of it's a bunch of collected company for some reason of control decks it's not the best card but it's the one you are scared the most when they just say land go, and you're like please don't have this on my end step please don't have this on my end step or i might actually have to do something to force it out of their hand right because if i don't force it like any other interaction i don't know if i can beat the the wandering emperor on my turn and it's a really easy card to underestimate when you look at it. Entering with three loyalty counters in this year is so low. But card, that's what it has to. being Having flash makes it so... It's 99% the fact that it has flash. It's such a huge, huge upgrade to anything you can even think of.
0: So things to know when playing against blue-whites. Like any reactive blue deck, there's a ton of room for customization. But blue white has really embraced this, and you'll often find a bunch of like one of devastating cards, like one Chalice of the Void, sometimes main deck, sometimes sideboard. One Shark Typhoon, which might just surprise you if you were expecting them to flash in a Wandering Emperor, and instead they make a four four or a five five shark. Some of the versions will play Kahira the Orphan Guard as a companion. Uh, this is a mostly useless creature but you're allowed to play it if all of your creatures in your main deck are of the appropriate types. I think it's Cat, Elemental, Nightmare, or Beast, or something like that.
1: It's a lot of types.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it's compatible with Solitude, that's the main thing. If they reveal a Kahira, that means they're not playing Snapcaster Mage. Yes. If they don't reveal a Kahira, they probably are playing Snapcaster Mage.
1: If you ever see a Kahira, like, Yorion exposes your opponent being on a pile, Kahira either says your opponent is on a Soyuzo control, or a belcher player trying to get you so remember that you don't want creature removal if your opponent shows you a kahira it's not elementals everybody <laughs> it's either a Solus control or belcher yeah but yeah kahira is not that great in this deck losing snappy stuff but it's a card that you can pitch to solitude most of the time it's like three mana, draw a white card that's then new exile
0: the other thing to be aware of is that the blue-white player might fetch a weird land on the first turn. They might fetch like a Raulgrin Triome or a Breeding Pool. And you might be thinking like, oh, what are, what are they splashing? Are they going to bring in some weird card? And the answer is usually no. It's usually just to give them access to extra colors so that their Prismatic Endings are capable of removing 3 and 4 mana permanents. With the caveat that sometimes they'll play Veil of Summer out of the sideboard.
1: Veil of Summer out of the sideboard or main deck Fahrenheit are the only cards you should expect out of the Triumph at the Breeding Pool. Don't expect them playing anything flashy or anything like big with those colors besides that.
0: Yeah. Any other notes, things to be aware of?
1: M- mostly the fact that you need to... This is like... The regular control deck of this time. So for anyone that has played Magic in the past, this is the same that it has ever been. Like the card quality has been greatly upgraded. Cryptic Command became Arcray Charm. manalik became Counter Spell. <laughs> Path became Solitude. But the basis of the deck is the same. It's like just upgraded. So if you ever enjoy those control B if you enjoy just playing those sort of matchups, this deck is still the same. Don't think it 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 even still has a colonnade as one of its wincons. <laughs> so it hasn't changed that much, just remember, the cards are more powerful. You're not gonna mess with Solitude and 5-mana Teferi.
0: <laughs> yeah, and if you don't believe us, if you feel like, uh ah, there's too many newfangled cards in here, I don't want to read all these, this next deck might be for you, because the next deck on our list plays literally zero new cards in the main deck.
1: I'm looking at these, and. Only four cards are from Modern Horizons. In the side
0: Yeah, so we're talking about classic Burn. Boros Burn.
1: Beautiful deck of old.
0: Mono Red with a light splash. For Boros Charm and Lightning Helix. You probably already have this deck somewhere in your, in your closet full of modern decks.
1: <laughs> this is literally the same deck it has been since I started playing Modern. It hasn't been that much. It's only been like four years. But the only card that has changed is Skiver the Critics. It was another uh, uh, deal 3 damage. The rest is exactly the same just with the added canopy lands, like the side-by canyon. 4 guide, for sweet spear, 4 eight alone, 20 volts 4 bonus charm, 2 to 2 helix. That's it. Sweet, easy, straight to the point.
0: Modern Horizons 1 added uh, canopy lands or horizon lands, Sunbaked Canyon, Fiery Islet, That's helped this deck quite a bit, and I think that's allowed it to keep up with the top tier. But, I mean, the other thing that has really helped this deck is that your options in game two get a little more focused. So the the sideboard leans heavily into white cards. You'll find Sanctifier and Vec. This is white-white for a 2-2 with protection from red and black, and when it enters the battlefield, it exiles all red and black cards from all graveyards, and that continues to be in effect for the rest of the game. Core Firewalker for the Mirror, Smash to Smithereens, Path to Exile, Prismatic Ending, Deflecting Palm. I mean, these are these are cards we know.
1: <laughs> Never forget the one new addition besides the Sanctifier, which is the Running Vortex. Which has a lo- Rolling Running Vortex has three paragraphs of text, which is a lot. So, the Vortex is a human enchantment that reads. At the beginning of each, up- each upkeep the, un- the owner of the turn loses a point of life, so it's like slowly pinging you away. Whenever a player plays a free spell, they take five points of la- they takes five points of damage, which is something really important because suspend spells cannot be not casted. So if you ever suspend like a crashing footfalls, you have to cast it once it resolves. So this means against any Cascade it's, against any cascade. Deck, this is going to make them lose 5 points of life. And against anyone with a lot of free spells, the same thing. And finally, you can pay a red mana to make sure no, no players can gain life this turn. Which is just going to stop. It's like a repeatable school crack that your opponent has to remove before they can gain life. Which is tough when your opponent is has, has to gain life really, really fast if, to not die.
0: Yeah, it's a card that I really underestimated. I thought that needing to pay red to activate that clause was going to be too inefficient to get Roiling Vortex as a staple card, but it's proven to be like worth the trouble.
1: Yeah, I think we all underestimated. It took a lot of time for people to start playing it, because I think everyone assumed that, and all of a sudden, it wasn't.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It was just tempo-efficient enough, and... Likely for people that enjoy their old decklist and stuff that doesn't change, the next decklist has the same thing as this one.
0: Oh yeah, this is the boomer section. I guess we're in tier 1.5 now, I should say that. Starting with probably the blue-white control burn and uh, and now Tron, this is our next deck. These are tier 1.5 decks.
1: So, we're changing straight to another deck that has even less new cards. I might dare even say zero new cards. Which is insanity for me.
0: I think I see a in the deck somewhere.
1: There, okay, <laughs> so we're talking about good old green Tron. <laughs> which has 74 the same cards since World of the Spark. And a who endures.
0: Yeah, so the exact build of Tron... I mean... <laughs> It varies a little bit, but you're looking at you know a threat package of both Karns, Karn Liberated and Karn the Great Creator, a couple Ulamogs, some Ugans, and then you have Wormcoil Engines. The variation tends to come from what's in your Karn wishboard, that, that is Karn the Great Creator, what's in your Karn TGC wishboard. Now you're looking at cards like, I mean, Liquid Metal Coating is the main one in Snaring Bridge for Defense. Sundering Titan is one that has blown me out many times. Um,
1: <laughs> many of us. It's a tough card. And then the usual zero mana spells like Tormod Script and Kali's of the Void.
0: Yeah, Chalice of the Void protects you from a Cascade deck uh, on the same turn that you resolve Karn the Great Creator, which is nice.
1: Wait, is it Chalice?
0: Yeah, Chalice. I have I
1: been saying Kali's like an idiot and no one has corrected me? <laughs>
0: We love your accent. We love your unique approach. I can't
1: can't believe no one has corrected me in this before. I hate you, everybody.
0: I mean, we mispronounce things all the time, so...
1: (laughs) So. (laughs) I was sure it was Calis. Like, I was 100% sure about what I was doing.
0: (laughs) Chalice of the Void, yeah. Okay, so
1: Chalice of the Void. And, yeah, then the Four Natures Claim, because Blood Moon is a thing. And Valista in the sideboard, because uh, it's an amazing card. If you're wondering why this deck doesn't play Shiganta, it's because of the main deck Ballista and main deck Dismember. Because it feels like a free addition, but having main, any sort of main deck removal is really is really irrelevant.
0: Yeah, so not much to say about the builds. In terms of gameplay, um, I mean, be aware of Poseidon who endures.
1: In, in terms of gameplay, be aware that this is strong. Just... If you have played Magic in the past, you have played Against Run in the past if you have played Modern. It's the same deck, everybody. It now has more answers to land one in the main.
0: Yeah, because you can now Sylvan Scrying to put the Boseju into your hand, which is where it needs to be to channel it. Um, actually, we probably have not read Boseju, but it's a uh, Legendary Land Taps for Green, and you can channel it for one and a green to destroy any enchantment, artifact, or land an opponent controls. They get to search their library for a land with a basic land type, put that into play. You also get a discount if you have legendary creatures, but that's not going to happen here.
1: That's a <laughs> Basic land type means, for what's relevant, means you can get a Shockland, a Triumph, any basic, but not a Wastes.
0: Yeah, so if you are an Eldrazi Tron player, that deck is not going to make our list, but you should put a Swamp into your Eldrazi Tron decks. Yeah, um, because if you don't put a swamp in there when they cast Poseidon on your land, you will not have anything to fetch.
1: And one mana or two mana Pillash on a land is going to hurt you a lot.
0: Alright, next up.
1: So we're moving to a confusing deck for anyone that hasn't played against it. We're talking about the Crushing Footfalls or Rhinos deck, which In the history of Magic, or at least as far as I have known, any spell that's playing a zero mana cascade, a zero mana spell and a lot of cascades, has to be a combo deck, right? They're doing something super unfair and trying to win off that cascade. Hypergenesis in the past, sort of like decks and Living End. But not Footfalls. Not quite, at least.
0: Yeah, this is almost the spiritual successor to the... Valky Tibalt Cascade decks where you would cascade into a, a fair card. Well, not a fair card. But <laughs> a card that just generates value. Crashing Footfalls is a little bit different, right? So much like the card Living End, this is a Suspend card. It has no mana cost, which means, means you cannot cast it at all by normal means. Suspend 4 for a single green mana, and then when you cast it, it creates two four-four green Rhino creature tokens with Trample. So, you'll often find this deck called either Rhinos or Footfalls or Crashcade, if the people want to get really cute.
1: <laughs> Crashcade is pretty cute.
0: Um, they're talking about this card. Yeah, they're talking about the Footfalls. So, it just adds eight power to the board, eight power with trample. And you can do that for three mana. You can do that at instant speed if you're using the card Violent Outburst. Uh you can do that with Charlotte's agent and you'll end up with an additional two two body in place, so now you're looking at ten power off of a single card. Is that worth the price of admission? Well, it means in exchange that you're you're not playing any true one or two mana spells. Instead you have to find something else to fill your deck out with. And the Rhinos decks that we're seeing now are playing a lot of burn spells and counter magic.
1: And. Um... It's the fact of how efficient this deck can be without actually getting the footfalls developed that makes it cool. You will lose a lot of games against this deck without seeing a single Rhino if you just focus on stopping that. Because unlike Living End, which has to play like 20 bad cyclers, this deck doesn't play particularly bad cards.
0: Yeah, because it's not playing cyclers, it doesn't find the cascade cards as often as Living End does. So... There's only eight copies of Shardless Agent and Violent Outburst, and if you like counter the first footballs, or if you thought use the first Cascader, it might be a while before they actually cast a second copy. But that doesn't mean that they're not in the game. They have plenty of other stuff to do. They have Bonecrusher Giant and Brazen Borrower. These cards were the Scourge of Standard from Throne of Valdrain. They're adventure creatures. They have four copies of Force and Negation. They have four copies of Fire and Ice. Dead and Gone, uh, you'll often find Three or four copies of that. That's a split card from Ancient Set. I'm trying to think of what it was. Plane Shift or something? Plane or Chaos, maybe?
1: The Boom? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, those are all cards. It's
0: a split card Shock or Unsummon, basically?
1: Shock or Red Unsummon is so weird.
0: Right, but the Red Unsummon turns out to be important against cards like Murktide Regent. Oh yeah, 100%. And then four copies of Fury, the the red member of the elemental cycle. Yeah, all all of these MH2 elementals are very, very good, and they all have homes. Fury, 3-3 double strike for 3 red-red. When it enters the battlefield, deals four damage, divided as you choose among any number of creatures and or planeswalkers, and you can pitch it, that is, evoke it for free by pitching a red spell from your hand.
1: So the combination of a lot of removal, because... If you count bounce effects, this is actually playing around 16 removal spells. Actually even more, close to 20 removal spells, alongside the fact you can't get 10 ten of power on board and the free and the free counter spells. This is just gonna play like a mid range deck that you just have to either outvalue or go below it. Yeah. Because you cannot just try to stop it as a combo deck, that's not going to work.
0: So when playing against Footfalls, um, be aware of the card Blood Moon. Some decks play it main. Uh, they'll definitely have it at least in their sideboard. Sometimes up to three copies. Also be aware of the card Fire Ice. If your plan is to hold up Counter Magic for when they get to three mana and they're about to cast you know, their Cascade spell, they might just be able to use Ice to tap your land on the previous turn, uh, and then you'll be out of luck and you'll be facing down some Rhinos. <laughs>
1: That that's that's a fearful draw, right? Like turn two sus- like the dream draw is turn one sus- suspend footfalls, turn two, ice your land, turn three, cascade. Either as a sorcery because you don't have open control spell or just on your end step.
0: Yeah. If you have Teferi Time Reveler, that shuts down the cascade mechanic you should probably uptick Teferi to five because they couldn't have Fury. Fury can hit Planeswalkers. And if you downtick Teferi to get, get greedy, uh, they will just pick off your Teferi with Fury or Bone Crusher. And- or,
1: or Fire and Ice. Or like, there's a lot of cards to punish a, a on one. Or Prismatic Command, even. <laughs> Don't minus Teferi against them unless you have to. Because it's really important to keep it up. Cards like Flasterstorm are at a premium, so they cannot go like instant speed cascade plus fun.
0: Fawn. Fawn being force of negation.
1: <laughs> I I I got personally asked not to say that I just could, and I just forgot. I just <laughs> I just have it so ingrained in my brain as that. So Force of Negation, so they cannot go instant speed, cascade plus force of negation. Stuff like Flasterstorm or Domin's Speed are at a premium in this matchup.
0: Before we started recording, I was explaining to Emmy that, okay, we're going to pitch this more at, like, returning players, so let's try to avoid, like, nicknames and lingo, but also, in general, we're not going to say phone anymore.
1: (laughs) And has a profound hate for me using the word phone. Like, it's the one he hates the most.
0: I mean, Damon, Damon is even worse about this. He has all kinds of weird nicknames. He plays Stoneblade and Legacy, and in Legacy, they they talk about Sophie all the time. You know, Sophie, Sword of Fire and Ice. Like, I don't know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> no, no, Sophie is Fire and Ice, come on. I mean, I guess. No, no, no I get, we, If you say so. We even say it here, like, in Spider-Man, it's Sophie. La Sophie.
0: Um. So, in the sideboard, similar to Living End, you can expect cards like Fove, or Force of Vigor.
1: No, no, wait. We also use Fove, and not ironically, it's Fove.
0: Oh my gosh. No,
1: no. Wait, wait, we're not, we're not kidding that. It's fun and fob. I don't use fob with you because you're going to go insane. But it's fun and fob.
0: Well, how do you distinguish between force of vigor and force of virtue? So that's No
1: one cares about force of virtue. <laughs> I distinguish them by playing the good card.
0: <laughs> okay, all right.
1: So fun and fob are expected like, to see at least a place, like a pleasure of both.
0: All right, so that's Teamer Rhinos slash Footfalls slash Crashcade. A deck that is hanging around the middle of Tier 1.5. Next up on the list, an oldie but goodie, Amulet Titan. Amulet is so interesting because at various times it has been the absolute best deck in Modern over the past couple years. Sometimes even in really broken metagames. Yeah. And when you look at the deck list, it seems like Every set or every other set gets, and, a like, gets a huge upgrade. Like, they get new cards all the time, and nothing has been banned from the deck besides Summer Bloom many years ago. So, has the deck just wait, wait, been wait. getting better and better?
1: Wait, once upon a time.
0: Oh, I forgot about once upon a time. Okay. Correction. One card has been banned from the deck <laughs> since Summer Bloom, <laughs> namely once upon a time. Man, those cards are broken. Jeez, Eldrin, what a set. <laughs> um,. But, I mean, apart from that, there's just so many new tools, so you would think that Amulet is better than it's ever been, and yet somehow the metagame has been able to keep pace. So how are Amulet decks built these days?
1: So the finest new addition is Ursa Saga. Ursa Saga, not because of it making constructs, as we last saw with Hammer, but actually because of its last paragraph. The fact you search for an artifact that costs 1 or 0 allows you to get Amulet of figure with a lot more consistency than you could in the past. You have a turn 1 land drop that by turn 3 guarantees you an Amulet on play. And that's huge for this deck. Like if it's the namesake out of your deck and you can get it for free, you want it 99% of the time.
0: Yeah, Urza's Saga is typically not a great play on turn 1, because the way that the timing works. Uh, on turn 2, you won't have enough mana yet to activate chapter 2, so you you won't be getting much value out of a turn 1 Urza's Saga. But Amulet doesn't care. They just want to get to chapter 3 as fast as they can, because once Amulet of Vigor is in play, everything is in, at risk of just popping off.
1: Yeah. So the other addition is, as a one-off or two-off, you're going to see Cultivator Colossus. Cultivator Colossus is a weird card. It's a 7-mana trample, right? If I'm not mistaken, that's a 0-0 zero, zero that has strength, has power and toughness equal to the number of lands you have And it has one of the most insane EDB in the history of MTG enter, enter the battlefield triggers Once it enters the battlefield, you can put your, a land card from your hand into the battlefield and you get to draw another card Which means as long as you're drawing lands or playing lands, you keep just going and repeating it until you want to stop, which means by the end of the the trigger your hand is going to be all non-land permanents and you're going to have the same amount of cards. So if you started with this with five cards in hand and three of them were lands, you're going to finish with five non-land cards in hand and all the lands you have in the top of your deck until you get two spells and the three lands in your hand into the battlefield. And when you're playing a, 40, a 30-something land deck, that means you're going deep.
0: Yeah, this build that we're looking at in front of us has 32 lands. Um, I've seen some that play 34 or 35 lands, although some to play Turn Timber Symbiosis instead, which is one of the um, Zendikar modal lands. You can cast it as a spell instead for 7 to look at your top 7 cards and try to find a Primeval Titan. The deck has a couple angles now, right? So it used to be that if you can just stop the Primeval Titan, whether by stopping them from ever casting it or by killing it before it can attack, uh, you bought yourself a good amount of time. But between of the Elysian Grove and Urza's Saga and now Cultivator Colossus, there's a few different ways that an amulet player might be able to kill you even without Primeval Titan. That being said, the threat of Titan is constant. There's four Primeval Titan, four Summoner's Pact, some number of Tolaria West, which can be transmuted to find Summoner's Pact. Their Urza Saga package is going to be a little bit different from what we talked about in the Hammer Time deck. They usually are not playing cards like Shadow Spear, or they're not playing like a Soul Guy Lantern for Graveyard Hate. They, They usually just have amulet and maybe an expedition map to go find another land.
1: I don't think we have explained the amulet interaction in this deck, have we?
0: Uh no we haven't maybe we should run through that.
1: So the Amulet of Figure is so powerful in this deck because it plays eight of the Ravnica bounce lands. The Ravnica bounce lands are a land that enters the battlefield tap on enter- when it enters it makes you get back a land into your hand from the battlefield but it taps for two mana. The Amulet of Figure means you gotta untap it before you bounce anything. So let's say you have a Dryer of the Grows, which gives you an additional land drop. You can play your bounce land, tap it for two mana. It back, replay it, and all of a sudden you get 4 mana back. This allows you to play Primeval Tyrant or Cultivator Colossus extremely fast, especially in combination with cards like Azusa. With Azusa, you just means ba- Azusa, Bounce Land, and an Amulet of Igor, because Azusa gives you 2 extra land drops, means you already have 6 mana. And this gets exponential really fast, because with 2 amulets now you have 12 mana. So you're getting insane amounts of mana that allows you to keep casting your spells. Some of the Really important interactions of the deck you need to know are primeval titan, getting and a primeval titan with an amulet on board means you can get the bonus bounce land, which means it helps for bonus mana, and the slayer stronghold, which is a land that for a blue and a red for a white and a red gives up creature haste and vigilance and plus 0, plus oh, which means they get to attack with the titan and then tutor again. Or the other plan is they can tutor the simic bounce land and a tolaria west so they can tutor for another pack. And just get that arrow creature next turn.
0: Yeah, the theory behind Amulet is that once Primeval Titan has resolved, you've set up like a functional kill, right? An overwhelming board state and an engine that the opponent can't break. Um, there is going to be a variation in the lists, right? Some some lists are actually not playing Boros Garrison and Slayer Strongholds anymore. Some have switched to Hanware Battlements, which is slightly worse, right? It doesn't give plus two plus zero. Oh but it's like a better land to draw in general.
1: The thing is, it costs only rare, so you can, instead of playing the bonus bounce land, like, it costs only rare to give haste, so you can actually just give it haste looking for a Balakut, which allows you to, A, develop a Balakut, and B, not have to play the bonus bounce land in your deck, which is like a really, really bad land to play.
0: Yeah, exactly. When playing against amulets... Blood Moon and Megas of the Moon are your best bets to prevent them from killing you. That erases all the special text on their lands. The game is not over, because you know they can still cast a Dryad after the Blood Moon and, and at least cast their stuff. They'll have usually two, sometimes three copies of Boseju who endures in their main deck, which they can find either by transmuting to Luria West or sacrificing Expedition map to go find that, which allows them to disenchant a Blood Moon. So actually, Magus is slightly more reliable than Blood Moon these days.
1: For the first time in a while, Magus has been a lot more valuable than... than Blood Moon against these sort of decks. Because of issue? Yeah.
0: You can always, you know, attack the amulet itself. You can try to attack the Urza Saga that can be a point of vulnerability. A lot of things can destroy those cards. If you have your own Boseiju, you can try to destroy a bounce land with the untapped trigger on the stack, or the bounce trigger on the stack. There's a lot of tips and tricks that go into it, too much for us to cover all here.
1: So, we can, I think, go down to our final port list for today. And are we still
0: in Tier 1.5?
1: We're going to Tier 2 with this, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we are. So these are decks that have disappeared a bit from the modern meta starting now. Decks that were a lot bigger before and now are not being played as much or never actually got the legs they needed to actually shine. Just the first of them is the four reanimator animator or respiratory animator popularized mostly by Spike a few months ago, which main plan consists of getting an Archon of Cruelty in the graveyard mostly through Faithful Mending or ungrave Grave and persisting it back. Persist is 2 mana. Reanimate a non-legendary creature and get it back with a minus 1-1 counter. Which means you get a 5-5 five, five Archon, which is a 5-5 five, five flyer, draw a card, gain 3 life, your opponent discards a card, sacrifice a creature, lose discards a card. So it's like a 6 for 1 on its own.
0: Yeah, it's it's a shockingly powerful card. Um <laughs> Archon kind of Cruelty, so they're trying to, I guess, evoke cruel ultimatum. It has a, a mini cruel <laughs> ultimatum when it enters a battlefield and when it attacks. Basically the game is over when Archon kind of Cruelty is in play. You may not think it's over, like you'll see them resolve it, they'll announce the trigger, and you'll be thinking, okay, what's my outs? What's my next line? But there is no next line. You're basically dead at that point. It's too much value to come back from.
1: Especially on the fact that the other part of the text, is, the other part of the deck is 8 of the Emoke Elementals, for Grief and for Solitude, and for Ephemerates. Which means once the Archon is in play, they might Ephemerate it to get another trigger and save it for a removal.
0: Yeah, so this is a very simple plan, right? I mean, Persist and Unmarked Graved are just more expensive versions of Reanimate and Entomb. They both happen at sorcery speed, they both cost 1 and a black, so they're a little bit clunky. They have Teferi Time reveller. Um, Just a good all-purpose card that also allows you to cast Persistent Unmarked Grave at instant speed. They have Prismatic Ending for removal, and Faithful Mending, which is the homeless man's faithless looting, as David would say. Color it into blue and white, draw two, discard two, and, and gain two life, and the flashback is one blue-white.
1: You have drifter.
0: Yeah, this is using some old-school cards, drifters. There's even Unburial Rites in the deck. So if you're familiar with this reanimator as a concept, you'll understand what this deck is trying to do intuitively, but you might be shocked at just how powerful the creatures are.
1: There's some sort of fact that the wooden rights is there because you can tutor for the rights with the Alma Grave. So in case you, have a, you already have the Archon in your graveyard, but you lack the reanimator, you can actually tutor for a reanimation spell. And a big part of this deck is you're not always persisting the Archon. It's extremely common to just like turn three persist a Muldrifter, or like a grief and play a really good grinding game that eventually you just win because you have amazing late game with your Argons of Cruelty.
0: So playing against this deck, I mean, I personally find this deck to be quite weak and unimpressive. But the, I think the biggest thing to know is that if they cast grief on turn one and ephemerate it. You will probably lose that game. Just don't overreact to that. That's a very rare sequence. It happens maybe one out of five or six games. Yeah, and it
1: happens to all and it can happen with a lot of decks. I just tend to be like, okay, suck it up. Yeah. I don't concede just so never concede to that later one, even if you think it's lost. Make sure you know what you're playing against just so you can cyber correctly.
0: Yeah, and don't and don't overreact and feel like that's their main plan and you need to do something about that in your sideboarding. There there really isn't any good counterplay against that, um, besides like subtlety or veil of summer. But I just wouldn't even bother. I would just assume they're not gonna draw it again. They use their one shot on it.
1: Yeah, also the fact that you remember, it's not that much more card advantage for them that it's against you. They had to use three cards on it. So they have a grief, but they lost a lot of cards, which means their hand ma- might be really anemic.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally not that different from someone going Thoughts, to use Inquisition. Exactly. Take your three best cards. They have a 3-2 left over, but, you know, that's okay. Um, so that's Reanimator. Uh, anything else people should know about this deck?
1: Besides that, make sure that you're ready for Serra's Emissary of the Sideboard. And Sarah's Emissary is for some reason a non legendary creature, which means they can persist it back. And if you're playing something like Hammer or something, and something being like really creature based or spell based or like a combo deck, make sure you have an answer for it because it can lock you out of the game. Sarah's Emissary is a 7 mana 7 7 that gives you, your creatures, and your whole permanence protection from a type of permanent. From a type of card, sorry. So they can, get, you, they can just get protection from creatures and stop all your hammer time plays. Or your solitudes from being removal.
0: Yeah, somehow even more effective than Iona's Shield of Emeria at shutting the opponent out. Although Iona, being legendary, is not eligible for Persist anyway.
1: So yeah, take a take miser into consideration. Besides that, so just extra discards from the sideboard is what you, you should expect.
0: Yeah, I find that, like... Stopping the reanimation target efforts in play is like a bad idea in the first place, because Archon is so much value. If possible, just try to prevent them from reanimating, uh, whether by attacking the graveyard or just stopping them from resolving these spells. Yeah. Alright, next deck up.
1: Almost done for everybody. Bit of a long one, but we just wanted to get everything in as much info as we could. Yeah. So we're going to talk a bit about the Creativity Decks, which used to really cut go, the time in the sun like two months ago. They were everywhere, and now they're like really disappeared. Creativity Decks are based on the power of Indomitable Creativity, which is a spell that's X and triple red, so at least four mana spell, that exiles a creature or artifact. Exiles or destroys? It's mostly relevant. A creature destroys, destroys a creature or artifact for each X, it destroys a creature or artifact, and its owner reveals cards from the top until they, re- until they reveal a creature or an artifact and put it straight into play. So what does this mean? If you have a deck that only has a creature you want to get, for example, your deck only has Argon of Cruelty, and you have a way to make creatures that does not involve playing creatures, like stuff like... Dwarven mine that if it enters untapped you get a 1-1 or I don't know Prismatic Command making a treasure, you can for four mana, destroy your own permanent, destroy your own creature, and get an Archon of Cruelty into play. Immediately. Or if you have two tokens, five mana, get your Archon of Cruelty into play.
0: So we talked about the card Transmogrify last week on the podcast which is a card that David really loves. And one of the issues there is that Transmogrify only targets one thing, and that means if they have like a fatal push to destroy your token in response to you casting Transmogrify, you're not going to get anything out of it. Indomitable Creativity is different. It has as many targets as you can afford. And what that means is that it will attempt to resolve as much of the spell as possible. So let's, let's say that you cast Indomitable Creativity X equals two, because you have two tokens in play, and your opponent is like, well, I'm going to Fatal Push your token in response. Creativity says, that's fine, I will continue to resolve on the other token which you did not Fatal Push, and you'll still get one of your payoff creatures.
1: And that's exactly the plan with this deck.
0: Right, and we've talked about a lot of different variations of variations on this over the past few months. Um, you know, Zach, Manus, Symbol, Ryle has done a lot of work on the archetype trying to get either Velomachus Lorehold or Emrakul, the Eon's Torn plus a Sarah's Emissary. Archon kind of Cruelty is more fashionable now, I think.
1: Yeah, just a number of archons with a reanimation package, or just getting Primeval Titans and getting your Balakuts for the win.
0: Yes. Um... I guess the other thing to know about Indomitable Creativity is they might not do anything for the first few turns. It might take a couple turns to realize what's happening. Because if they're just playing Renin and Six, Prismatic Ending, and Fetchlands...
1: It just looks like a four-color deck at first. Like, a Yorion pile that has no Yorion.
0: Exactly. And then immediately on turn four, they play a Fetchland, sacrifice it, get the card Dwarven Mine, which is a mountain, so you can find it off a of Fetchland. Dwarven Mine comes in and produces a token they cast their creativity and all of a sudden, you know, you're toast. So just be aware, if, if they look like they're just durling around and they haven't revealed Yorian, uh, they might be a creativity deck. Um, the other option is that they might be a crashing footfalls deck, so just pay close attention to exactly what they're casting in the first couple turns.
1: You will see a small subtleties to show you what exactly is going on, but yeah, creativity tends to just conceal itself for a while. And all of a sudden, you're getting a combo, like, left field.
0: Yeah, the card Hard Evidence is a dead giveaway. This is a single blue sorcery. It creates a 0-3 crab, and it investigates, so you get a clue. It's a really nice card. It blocks. It provides two targets for creativity.
1: Exactly. Remember, please, this is really relevant. Don't play Artifacts in your sideboard. (laughs) We have seen this in the past... It has happened with the madcap experiments in the past, people playing Storm with madcap and just adding Torbot script. I have had people play creativity and creativity into Akalis. Don't. Creativity is both (laughs) creatures and artifacts, so please remember your cyborg cannot have any of those unless you're planning on hitting them with your creativity. Last but not least, we have... One of the decks I think is the most enjoyable for players of the past because I hear a lot of people talking I want to get back into modern but I don't want to just play Modern Rises to 2 Constructor, I want to play something old. And besides the Azorius deck I think this one has the most of that feeling of an old modern deck. And that's the Yogmoth combo deck. Yogmoth combo is a mid-range deck with a combo finish in the sort of the original pod decks that also plays a lot of tutors in the form of Eldritch Evolution and Code of Calling that allows the deck to not only consistently present a grindy aggressive plan but also have a really strong combo finish that just makes the most out of its very simple parts. Young Mothred Physician is a 4-mana 2-4 protection from humans that has the insane ability that you pay a life, sacrifice a creature, you get a minus one minus one counter and draw a card. But you can put that minus one, minus one counter anywhere, that's including your own creatures. And that means if you have two creatures with undying, dying, you can just loop that constantly. Because you sacrifice a creature, it comes back with a counter, you put it on another, you sacrifice the other creature, it comes back with a counter, and then you put that counter on the first one. And when you put a minus one and a plus one counter on the same creature, it doesn't get both, they get destroyed. So it means the creature doesn't have a counter anymore and you can sacrifice it again and you can just repeat that loop. However, you're losing one life every single time but you're drawing cards. You're slowly going... You're drawing a card each time and eventually you just win by getting... Either a Geralt's Messenger and you sacrifice it 10 times and you just lose a life or you get stuff like a Blood Artist on board and just Blood Artist your opponent out of the game. So... This deck is able to play a lot of mana dorks because, moth you can just sacrifice these mana dorks and in the late game to draw cards. Which means your opponent is actually incentivized to actually kill every single creature you you put on the board because they just transform into card draw if they ever became useless. Like if your opponent has three noble hierarchs, which is a uh, the new no- the new noble hierarch, but it's a Goblin that taps for shunt colors of mana. They just play a Yoggmoth in the late game, they sacrifice it, put 3-1 counters on your creatures and draw 3 cards. And that keeps them going, keeps them finding gas. Yoggmoth is by far the most important card of the deck. And it's not even close.
0: Yeah, and to to find Yoggmoth, they'll often play 4 copies of Eldritch Evolution and 4 copies of Chord of Calling. The drawback for Eldritch Evolution having to sacrifice a creature. Is not such a big drawback when you're playing Young Wolf and Strangled Root Geist. They actually come back stronger. Court of Calling, great with these random creatures, great with Wall of Roots. Wall of Roots effectively contributes two mana towards a Court of Calling, because you can tap it for Convoke and use it for mana.
1: Remember it's back on the DGO, so you gotta float the mana before any spells. You cannot use it as a mana ability for some reason, for anyone that's going to try this deck. Like, small words of advice.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, and then the MH2 edition, because you have to play some MH2 cards. <laughs> Besides Ignoble Hierarch, there's Grist the Hunger
1: Tide. It's a tiny addition.
0: Yeah, often considered the second best card in the deck, depending on who you ask. It's a Planeswalker for one black green, but it counts as a creature in all other zones. It counts as a 1 1 insect which means that if you're tutoring your deck with a Court of Calling or Eldritch Evolution, you're allowed to choose Grist the Hunger Tide, and then when it comes into play, it becomes a Planeswalker as normal. Its abilities are plus one, make an insect token, and you also mill a card when you do this, and potentially if you hit an insect, you get to do it again, but that that doesn't really happen.
1: That doesn't really happen unless you mill exactly another Grist that considers itself an insect in your deck.
0: Uh, The biggest one is that its minus ability... Allows you to sacrifice a creature when you do destroy target creature or planeswalker. So now your Eldritch Evolution or your Court of Calling finds a permanent that generates value and destroys problematic creatures and planeswalkers. And it even has a minus five, so that's actually pretty achievable. That deals damage equal to the number of cards in your or creature cards, I should say, in your graveyard. So that's the the real trick to Moth is that. You know, my only quibble with what Emmy said is that I would describe this as a creature-based aggro deck with a combo finish. It's not really mid-range. It's capable of drawing cards in the longer game because of moth and because of the inherent card advantage of Undying. But you win most of your games just by attacking, pressuring their life total, get a few hits in with Stringer Root Geist, get them in range.
1: Yeah, like I get what you say with that. It can be... It just draws too many cards to be like an aggro deck and plays a really long game. But you're right in that what it does is pressure your opponent's life total to the point they have to start f- dealing with your plan B before you can actually go for your plan A, which is the combo, or the other way around. Your plan A aggression makes your opponent have to deal with that so you can easily sneak in your combo as they waste resources fighting your aggressiveness or your or to protecting the life totals.
0: So Yawgmoth is a really cool deck. I mean, it's very, very different from a lot of the strategies we've talked about so far. And one of the complaints you might hear people say about Modern is that it feels a little homogenized now, that the Modern Horizons 2 cards are so strong that they really force you to just combine the good pitch elementals or something into different configurations. To me, Yawgmoth feels like just a totally different style of deck. Uh and I like that a lot. Now it does play Endurance, actually main deck and sideboards. This is one of the few decks that has a main deck endurance. <laughs> but that's mainly because it's a creature toolbox strategy and it's just, you know, it's good good value to have one or two ofs like endurance, like Outland Liberator, <laughs> like Blood Artist. Uh sometimes I see Hapatra Vazira Poisons.
1: Yeah, the deck just plays differently from from the others in the format. Just because it's the only creature-based combo, it's like reminiscent of Pod decks, of devoted Druid decks, the original versions, not the full-on combo ones. And it's a beautiful deck to both play, and it has really good fun matchups against everything. Like it's a matchup you will enjoy playing. Not like I I see a lot of people that want to play combo but don't want to play Living End because they feel like they lack capability of decision or such. That won't happen with the Okmoth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this would be a great deck to pick up. It, it's not going to get old. It's got a lot of uh, cool lines, and it's fun. Exactly. All right, so that is a dozen decks or so that constitute the top tiers of Modern right now. State of the formats, you know, it changes over time, but I think that's a a good assessment of where we are in March of 2022 as we're on the verge of New Capenna and as we're figuring out what the landscape looks like post Lurus of the Dream Den.
1: (laughs) Post Lurus, a lot has changed, but a lot less than people expected, I think. Like, people expected a huge revamp, and most decks just dropped it in favor of keep playing the good cards.
0: Yeah, a couple of things shuffled around a little bit in, like, the the top five or ten decks, but there hasn't been any, like, wholesale destruction of an archetype.
1: Yeah, exactly. The only decks that actually died or disappeared were the control decks that just wanted to play Lurus, like the light decks, remember?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And those just, of course, disappeared and just went for, like, real control. But yeah, Modern is looking great, so for anyone that wants to join or just want to uh, talk more about Modern, you can always talk to us, you can always share our Discord. All of our patrons get to join and just discuss the formats, look for the Eglis and see what we love doing which is playing Bashiq.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the format continues to be wide open if you're willing to go beyond this, this top dozen or so decks. When you join a modern league on Magic Online or when you show up to play FNM, you'll find all kinds of stuff. Like, we haven't talked about my deck, which is Sultai Crabvine. I love this deck. It's just not even in the top tier. We didn't talk about Jun. We didn't talk about Affinity. We didn't talk about Dredge.
1: There's a lot of other decks. I think this was enough to be a huge panorama, but I think I could easily think about three or four, at least even five more decks that could be mentioned and that you can see in your day-to-day playing leagues in Modern.
0: Oh, I would say 20, 20 more decks, at least 20 yeah. more decks.
1: Then practically got top 32, got out of Breakers on, on 33 with Crabbind, which isn't even mentioned, and it isn't even played much and just gets to show how open the Modern meta is.
0: So we hope this has been a useful overview, either for you, if you're coming back to the format, or if you already know this stuff, you're completely caught up, good for you. But maybe this can be a reference point to check back in on where we were, and you know this can be something that we can refer to later as we explore in our regular weekly schedule some of the spicier new additions and new tech that's popping up. It's good to have a baseline, I think, of like where things stand. That being said, you know we'd love to get your feedback. If you like this kind of show, if you want us to do it as a regular thing every few months, or if you're like, okay, once is enough for me, you know, I know this stuff. I'm not interested. In it. <laughs> let us know. I was looking at on feedback to make more useful and valuable references for people to play the formats we love.
1: Yeah, exactly. We always want to get more people into the format, so everything we can do to bring people back, please let us know.
0: All right, that being said, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. I think next week when David is back, we'll do something similar for Pioneer, just checking in on like what Pioneer looks like right now, because Pioneer is a format very much on the rise. A lot of people wondering how they can get into Pioneer, and that, that landscape is shifting all the time. We're also not done for this week. In our Sunday pod, we are going to take a look at some of the new previews from Streets of New Capenna. We've been getting a trickle of cards uh one a day so far we'll check in on the organized play announcement, and we'll tell you about some testing we've done with fable of the mirror breaker and some new brews that we've been kicking around
1: yes so hope to see it a few days and have a nice weekend everybody yeah take care bye bye
0: that's a wrap on this edition of the faithless brewing podcast tune in on sunday for the return of the pro tour previews from New Capenna, and testing results with Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.